Mornings with Adam Curry for May 16th, 2020. This is episode number 37, and not even five days after episode 36. We're back. Hey, Mo, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Adam. How about yourself? Yeah, very good. I, I was like, whoa, man, Mo, did you fall out of bed? What happened? This is a, you're like a crazy person. Yeah, man, we're getting back on the Saturday cycle. Uh, so here we are. <laughs> very good. Everything's still good with the family? Everyone's still on lockdown from uh, from the Rona, but hanging in? Uh, everybody's doing good, uh, healthy, and uh, just enjoying life pretty much. Excellent. All right. Kind of the same here, I guess, in uh, in Texas. Although we have this weird weather. It's like we've got torrential rains every single night. It's like, I don't know how that happens all of a sudden. Very odd. I'm just as confused by the time as I am the weather. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Let's uh, see what we've got going on for today's MoFax. I have a feeling I haven't listened to anything, of course. Uh, Mo surprises me with what he shows up with. Um, but I did see one or two titles of the clips, and I think I know what it's going to be. But let's uh, wind up the infamous show topic, wheel of topics, and let's see where we're going today. Where this wheel stops, nobody knows. Of course, Mo does know. And today's topic is... 1619 Project. I knew it. I love that. I've been <laughs> wanting to talk about this thing for a long time. It just crept in. Uh, what, almost a year ago now, I'll bet, this uh, New York Times 1619 so. project? Uh, uh, yeah, a little over a year, maybe. So the, when these things crop up, I don't like to talk about them right away. I know a lot of people uh, hit me up I'm like, hey, you want to talk about this? But I like to see them play out. Mm-hmm. And that way we can get the full story. And I do that with a lot of things. I have it in my in my file. I create a file on it, but <laughs> and the last thing you want to be is in most file because that's that's not a good thing. <laughs> so um, let's just get. Uh, uh, you want to say something? Well, no, I was I was going to ask if you also had a file of license plate numbers of people who drove by your house. No, I did not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not yet. Um, All right, but let's just get get right into the ad for. Uh, Six, uh, 1619. In August 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. No aspect of the country we know today has been untouched by the slavery that followed. America was not yet America, but this was the moment it began. So what would I be seeing that would accompany this sound here at the end, Mo? Just the New York Times, uh, who was brought by. So basically, uh, I always leave the trailer music. That way people can get the, the whole sense vibe. of what emotions, yeah, the emotions they're trying to invoke. So that's why I always leave that. And it's clearly they're trying to, you know, make you feel something with this ad. So to fill people in on what the 1619 project was, that was it was a multi-part uh, presentation put together by the New York Times. Now, if I could just interject for a moment, because this came on the scene 
and it was heralded, literally heralded as this is this is the way children need to learn about America. This is the true the true origins of our country. And of course they came out with the date, which is not something that uh a boomer slash gen xer like myself would recognize 1619 it's like that's not one of the important dates we learned so this went into curriculum i've seen um teachers professors everybody all all jitty about the 1619 project um i've looked at some of it but i immediately felt that there was an agenda at play and this is even before we were doing the show i think that this thing came around didn't it I think I think it might have cropped up right when we first started. I okay. believe. Okay. I I want to say. Hold on. Let me see. Well, when it came on my radar, I'll say that. Um, I was out New York Times, and I stay away from the trauma-based journalism. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it, well, it's, that- <laughs> it sounded very much like trauma-based something in that just in that uh, in that short little ad by itself. Yes. So these next set of clips are from MSNBC, and it'll give us the background on the whole project. Last August, the New York Times magazine launched the 1619 Project in an attempt to reframe America's history through the lens of slavery. The name marks the arrival of the first enslaved people brought from Africa to the then Virginia colony. The sweeping project analyzed how slavery shaped American political, social, and economic institutions. Its authors sought to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. Demand for the issue was intense, with New Yorkers lining up on the street to obtain copies. It was one of the most read pieces of journalism produced by the Times that entire year. Really now? It was like, a, like it was a new iPhone? People were lined up on the street? People were lined up on the street to get this thing uh I was amazed that it was one of the most read. So that goes to show you how popular the, sna- the slave narrative is. We always talk about the slave narrative on this show, how they take it and make it part of an agenda, as you pointed out. And it was so widespread on the Internet. But as I stated before, it didn't pop up on my radar one, until some people started pinging me about it. And then two uh, is when this ad showed up that we just played previously. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I liked I liked the way it sounded. Uh, was that Mika from The Morning Joe? Uh, yes. Who did that clip? This is, yes. Did uh, so she start off by saying it's it's the history of America through the lens of slavery? Right. Okay. <laughs> right. So it's not really the history of America, but in a way, it's also kind of presented as the history of America. At least that's the way I've felt it. Just seeing stories, you know, along the way, but not really stopping to look into it too deeply. And the key term, I'm glad you picked up on that. And the key term that you're going to hear is the reframing. Ooh. This is going to be a, a repetitive theme in this whole on this whole topic. But I guess we can go ahead and get into part two of Mika. The project grew to include a special section in the paper, a live event series, podcasts, books, and even an ad that ran during the Academy Awards. But a backlash ensued. 
Princeton historian Sean Wilentz, generally considered to be a liberal, criticized its cynicism and began circulating a letter objecting to the project. Four leading scholars in their field, James McPherson, Gordon Wood, Victoria Bynum, and James Oakes, signed on. And the letter was sent to the New York Times, a version of which was published on December 4th. Hmm. Okay. This thing caught hell from both sides, uh, from the political left and, of course, the right. <laughs> yeah. Really, I, I, didn't re- being... I, I didn't realize that people on the left had huge problems with it. I, I didn't, didn't get any of that. Yes, the political uh, left and the real far left, the Marxists, even they had was up in arms about it. And we're going to get into that later. Uh, it was a very, it, it inflamed a lot of people. Hmm. <clears throat> including including myself <laughs> after I did my homework. <laughs> right. Well, and I figured something was off with it, but yeah, you know, I was like, okay. And I, 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 again, it was very, it was there on the radar and then it died down. And a couple months later popped up a little bit, but I, man, I totally missed all the controversy other than what, you know, when it first came out and I even thought, Hmm, okay. So th- I'm very happy we're doing this. Please lead us through it. Let me give you my first opinion so we can do this as it showed up, what I felt about it. Okay. I'm thinking, okay, New York Times talking about slavery right around going into 2020. This is to galvanize or black debate uh, the black voter. Yes. Uh, and they're going to use it as a uh, political propaganda to get people to vote. That was my first take on it. <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's probably what that is. Yeah, exactly. But it goes deeper than that. Oh, brother. <laughs> oh, brother. oh, boy. I was afraid of it. Yeah. We're, so we're going to get in that. But let's finish up the third clip in, in the background. Then in February, a counter project emerged. The 1776 project was launched by Robert Woodson, a black conservative and longtime community activist in Washington. Woodson said the project intended to counter what he called the anti-America propaganda of the Times Endeavor. What's troubling about 1619 is that it defines America as being incurably racist, he said. It insists that all white people are beneficiaries of privilege and victimizers, and all blacks are victims. Ooh, Robert. (laughs) Is this Robert L. Woodson who we are speaking of here? That is correct. Okay. So this touched on something that we've talked about on this show about the victimization mentality and how the slave narrative is used to uh, trigger that mindset in uh, quote unquote black people. Yeah, I I think it also triggers uh, white people. It does. And and the guilt part. So, I mean, it, it works both ways. It's the. It's victimization mentality on one side. It's it's like a smart bomb, really. It works on on everybody. (laughs) It's fantastic. Uh, So in all fairness, uh, in the route, I didn't really take any clips from the roundtable except from Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones and her pushback. Well, uh, let me start by saying uh, I think that intro kind of sums up where we are, which was there was a great deal of time spent on the detractors and almost no time in the intro spent on all of the historians who have stood behind the project. Um, 
This project states explicitly the ideology. We are a journalistic organization, and we said that we were going to do a project that was looking at the legacy of slavery and placing slavery at the center of the narrative. And that's what we did. It's not that we were hiding anything. Um, I find the backlash in some ways unsurprising and in some ways surprising. It makes me wonder if, if Mr. Page even read the project or if Mr. Page even read my essay, because my essay is about how black people, despite undergoing chattel slavery, legal apartheid, lynching, racial terrorism, segregated schools, segregated housing, segregated military, believed fervently in the founding ideals and have fought generation after generation to make those ideals true. And in fact, had a faith in a country that didn't treat us as citizens and expanded democracy for all Americans. I don't think that's victimization at all. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably one of the most patriotic pieces one could read. <laughs> Woo! One of the most patriotic pieces. Nice. So Nicole is a very interesting individual. Yeah. And I don't know where to place her because on some topics, she tells the outright truth. But on other topics, she's very quiet on. So going into it, and I'm letting people know how I received this before I started doing my, my digging. I was like, okay, I've heard her. I've heard her before on no other platforms. One being the Karen Hunter show. And from her, what she talked about, I was like, okay, she has some valid points. Um, so I started digging into the 1619, uh, project. And as they said, they had a podcast. Yes. Well, and, it's all that's it's always where you get cl- good clips from, man, from a podcast. Yeah. So I started with uh, the Land of Our Fathers, part one. In the fall of 1864, at the height of the Civil War, one of the most famous Union generals, William Tecumseh Sherman, begins his march out of the city of Atlanta to the sea. And as Sherman and his men make their way through Georgia, Black Southerners are seeing an opportunity. And so by the thousands, they start to leave the plantations where they've been enslaved and are falling behind Sherman's troops as they make their way to the coast. But these newly liberated people were not exactly welcomed. Sherman didn't actually oppose slavery. And so he's really not that sympathetic to those who are fleeing these plantations. And he also sees them as a drain on his resources. There are families, there are people of all ages, young and old, who need food and care. And they are slowing the troops down. I'll tell you, man, just from a production standpoint, that music is traumatizing me that they got in the background. <laughs> it's like it's in my head, like... It's, it's, like a, it's working like a Gregorian it's, it's, chant. Yeah, it's very hypnotic and and a little disturbing. That's the point of it. Well, yes, <laughs> I, I, I would say it opens you up, just like in the ad itself. Uh, they use these low, low rumbling, uh, uh, low rumbling and, vibrational and, and, tones. Yeah, yeah, and tone. And it, and it does open you up. I mean, if you study uh, sound, and I, mean, I know you're well aware, but yep. she's starting to lay out some good information here. I'm like, okay, well, she, at least she's th- telling that the North wasn't as sympathetic 
to the slave narrative as you would hear it in mainstream history lessons. Because the way the Civil War is laid out is the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln and his super soldiers, the North, uh, were all set hell bent on ending slavery. That's the narrative. It's, that's that's one of the narratives. Yeah, for sure. That's what's taught in grade it, school. And at least that's the narrative that's tar- targeted towards black audiences. Gotcha. Uh, well, when she starts to talk like she's talking, she's going to piss some people off because <laughs> now she's telling the truth about the Union soldiers and how they didn't really, you know, w- weren't really against slavery. And that's not really the reason why they were fighting per her, her take on history. By December of that year, some of Sherman's troops are about to approach Savannah. And they come up on a creek that is both too wide and too deep to cross without a bridge. So the troops start building one. And they instruct the black people who are following them to just wait that the troops need to cross first, but then they'll be able to come after. But the Confederate army is on their heels. And once the Union troops cross, they break up the bridge, leaving all those people who had just escaped slavery behind to face either the icy waters or the rebel army that was in pursuit. It is a massacre. Some of them drown trying to swim across. Others are trampled or shot to death. And those who remain are captured and re-enslaved. Holy crap. That's not the way it was supposed to go. <laughs> and and Interesting. remind people, this is, we're talking about the Union or Army, uh, not the Confederate yeah, these, Army. These were the good guys who were supposed to be saving the slaves. Right. So this is very jarring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. To have the well, I, have the, here's uh, what American here, education. All right, so, I don't, um, I don't know, if, I don't have to put the goggles on, but I'm already feeling the the I, the one of the goals of this 1619 project is just to, to make sure you know that all white people hate you. It's not just one or the other white person; it's all of them. Well, <laughs> at least back then, I wouldn't go. I, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, okay, she, she has another narrative, and we're going to get there. All right, I'm ready. Uh, but 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 that's that's let, let's just get into the next clip because I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> okay. When word gets back to Lincoln's Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, he is outraged. He has Sherman pull together a meeting with twenty black church leaders. There's a transcript of this meeting, and it shows that these two men, Stanton and Sherman, actually turned to this group of black leaders and asked them, "What do you want for your own people?" Speaking for the group, one of the men tells them, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor. That is, by the labor of the women and children and old men, and we can soon maintain ourselves and have something to spare. Man, they already had the Reverend Al racket going on back then. I'm glad you picked up on that. I heard you laugh. <laughs> well, you rang your this, bell while I was chuckling through it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, this goes to show you that this we we've been uh giving this uh grief to Margaret Sanger, but this pre bringing in the pastors predates her. 
Yes, yes. So she was just following along with with a well-established program. Correct. And what this does is this brings up um, one of the points of a very popular term, 40 acres and a mule. Right, which wasn't there an actual 40 acres and a mule uh, spot that was created for this very reason? Let's listen to the next clip. And what's remarkable is that Sherman turns that request of those men for land to work for themselves into a government order, Special Order Number 15. It said that the government would take 400,000 acres that it had seized from the Confederacy and split it up among those thousands of newly emancipated people. This becomes what is perhaps the most famous provision of the Reconstruction period, which we all know as 40 acres and a mule. President Lincoln approves the order, but soon after he's assassinated and Andrew Johnson, a Southerner who had once enslaved people himself, takes over the presidency and quickly overturns it. And within a few short months, the small amount of land that had been distributed to Black people was returned to white Southerners. Huh, there's that traumatizing sound effect again. <laughs> Man. Well, so that's, re- that's, point, that's, that's really nice of this uh, Andrew Johnson to screw everybody. Take it, is it, is, that's not cool. You, they took the land back from the black people and gave it to the Southerners. <laughs> how do you like that it's yeah. like oh yeah let me get that back and let's give it to the people that we've been fighting against uh as i listen and, and i'm like okay I'm, I'm rubbing my hands again i'm like oh she's on a, she's going she's on a right track here because of course we're going to talk about reparations right yeah you would expect because especially with uh, andrew johnson I, i'm pretty sure was a democrat <clears throat> No mention of reparations in this whole episode or the 1619 Project. <laughs> really? Throughout the entire thing, nothing at all? Nothing. And wow. the most interesting thing is Miss Nicole, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones lays out one of the best definitions of reparation on the Karen Hunter show. Reparations. What does reparations look like, Nicole Hannah Jones? Is it is it going to happen? Oh, so that okay. Those are two different questions. Um, This is what I'll say. I think the question of what reparations looks like is not that challenging, right? Reparations looks like a cash payment to those who can trace ancestry. Uh, I mean, uh, Sandy Darity, whom you interviewed for your piece, is kind of the 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 chief economist and thinker on this. Uh, If you can trace a descendant back to American slavery, you qualify for reparations and you can prove that prior 10 years prior to the discussion of reparations bill, you actually lived as a black person, right? So no racial dollars and whatnot. Um, So it's that. So I I think that's actually pretty easy. And I think reparations has to be two things. Anyone who thinks reparations should not come in a cash payment, I think is bought into the idea of white supremacy, Mm -hmm. right? Wealth was extracted. Wealth needs to be gotten. If I spend my whole reparations check at the Gucci store, that's my damn business. (laughs) I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Don't do it. But I'm saying, like, the notion that it's paternalistic to say black people can't be trusted to spend the money that they deserve for for restitution for what was taken. 
Wow, a lot in that uh, minute 15 clip. Um, I, I think that needs, <clears throat> we need to file that under Evergreen. or uh, Yeah, a, not a, a bad idea. That we're going to return to. Yes, definitely. So first of all, because she, was she joking when she said you have to prove that for the last 10 years you lived as a black person? I don't think she was. And I, what <laughs> I think she means by that is if you take somebody, say, a uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who's been passing <laughs> and right. then wants to show back up, you know, when okay. the, all right, when the right. checks are being cut. Right. That, so that won't be accepted. <laughs> no, that won't be accepted. And, and a lot of, I think we mentioned this before, but a lot of the Boulay members. Yeah. All, all passing. There's a lot of passing black people yeah. um, that, that a lot of black people that are passing for white. But so if you've been passing for white, you can't come out of the woodwork. That's by her definition. And that's pretty. That's a pretty interesting uh, stipulation. I mean, because so. So you've um, if you if you are passing and you are living, quote unquote, as a white person. Mm-hmm. Then you lose your uh, you lose your ADOS uh, uh, certificate. I mean, you don't really, of course, because you still have it in you. You have it in you, but if you're able to pass successfully, this this is the this is the the logic behind it. And I and I'm I'm on the fence about this one, uh, because that's a slippery slope. Yes, but I I understand her logic because she's saying if you are able to live as a white person. Say, hey, I mean, I'm going to use Jay, Jay Erica Hoover again. Mm-hmm. You haven't been impacted by the effects of slavery because you've been living wow. as a, a, and that's that threshold of white, black, because we're not talking about skin color here. We're talking about the privileges as if you're white, then you're pure uh, and you're accepted into society. So I think yeah. that's what it, Okay, but I, Wow, well, I'm I'm also on the fence about this. Uh, I, like I said, I, this is her definition, but because exclude that, exclude that point, everything else she says, I pretty much agree with. That point, um, I'm uh, I can see where she's going, and I and I honestly, if your family has been passing for white for say Hoover's kids, Hoover's grandkids, great grandkids, they're all white, right? Yeah. Oh, they are. Yeah, they are. But would it be fair for them to show up? And you've you've got all the benefits of passing for white, but then you want to show up and collect the check out of the blue. That's I think that's what she. I'm I'm, and I'm projecting on her, but that's how I interpreted what she was saying. Unless we could just shelve that, but uh, other than that. You see, she's quite aware of reparations, right? But 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 I just want to say one more. So Cory Booker grew up with, I'm sorry to say, his situation, when I look at it, two professors, Ivy League, uh, uh, upper, upper middle class suburban, he pretty much grew up with the privileges of a white person. But, and this is where their parents, I think we're talking more about appearance than being affluent. Because you could take a, how can I say this? Cory Booker was never confused for, well, he's never, visibly, he's not confused for being a, a white man. 
Here, here, okay, yeah, hold, here, I'm going to tell you what the slippery slope is, and, and now maybe this will help me explain why it's bothering me. Um, because when you, because yeah, you're saying someone passed as white. That is, it's a color issue because it is clearly the color of their skin that enables them to live that way. Correct. You got it. It's got to it, It's got to be a factor. Let me explain this to you. And now a lot of black people can agree with me on this one. And older white, uh, older in, in, in church, there were always one of two families. They appear like white people. Physically, mm-hmm. but they identified as black. Uh, so it's not about appearance. It's about you cloaking yourself in whiteness and you were you were successful at it. And then you pop up out of the blue when it's beneficial for you to collect reparations. I think that's the that's the point of the, the of the of the 10 year rule. I understand. I still just think that it's that particular the 10 year rule. That particular part is is uh, complicated because it still has to do with skin color, even though it's not the main point of it. But you can't pa- you can't pass if you don't look the part. That's that's just a fact. True. Um, like I said, this is that's it's very debatable. I don't think everybody that's pro reparations is pro this point. Um, I can like I said, I can understand her logic behind it, but it should just be removed from the conversation. I, I it's like. Why are we all? Here's my maybe this is God. I it's really you really rattled me with this one. Take it out of the conversation. No, take it out of the conversation. It's ADOS, period. Because if you're going to put stipulations in it, it sounds shitty. And 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 exactly the way you said it is well. But you know, if you were lucky, and you didn't say it, I'm I'm paraphrasing. Well, if you were lucky right, enough to right. be passable, and now you're going to show up the check, f you. You know, when the checks are being cut, f you. Don't focus on that. To me, it's like yeah, well, you're going to have those people. How many really are there that are like that? What's the percentage? Well, is oh, it, you'll be surprised. I mean, well, this is a good topic. Was, is it thousands? Is it tens was, of thousands yes. of people? Oh, let, where's my book at? Hold on one second. Wait. <laughs> you got a book? You oh, got I got a book. book. Uh, <clears throat> All right. But you understand where I'm coming from, right? It's like, it, I, why do you need to do that when the whole point is to get reparations? Maybe the people who have been passing, maybe they could be your allies and could talk to, with a white privilege, the white people who need convincing. Just saying. Well, the, the, the problem with that is, is if you denied your identity... And then you show up later when it's beneficial to you financially. I think that's the rub. I understand the. I completely understand that. I, my rub is if reparations is the most important thing. Don't make the first thing you say after reparations. You gotta live like a black person for ten years because then you're just a dick. I got it. You, they, we should have stipulations, but if that's how you're promoting reparations, I think it's very, very uh, annoying and short-sighted. You just said something. You said if you say that again, you said if you lived as a white person. No, no, let's say passable. 
living as a white person. Right. Reparation. No, I'm talking about people literally check white on their. I understand. I understand. I understand. Documentation. I understand. So you can understand that how that lets you yes, into yes, certain. Yes. Just, just stay, yeah. stick with me for a second. Stick with me, and then I want to hear the percentage that you think uh, of ADOS that that uh, passes and lives as white. So let's say uh, someone is ADOS has been living as white, all the white privileges, and but maybe possibly has felt really guilty their entire life because you know it's really not fair what I've done. I'm just giving an example. I could, maybe this is not true at all, but this is the thing that strikes me. And then reparations come around. This person, very much like a closeted gay person, might go. Oh my God, I've been living this lie all my life, and now I really want to be a part of it, but now I'm getting punished because I took uh, a way out that was seen as cowardly. And that's, that's really what it is. It's, you're, you're kind of being told you're a coward because uh, you knew it, but you didn't come out as it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense, but... I think it's the fact of you reaped all the benefits of portraying yourself as one way. And the only reason now, (laughs) the only reason now you want to identify as quote unquote black is because it's beneficial to. So that makes you even a shittier person. I understand. I understand. But but think think with me for a second. The people, Mm -hmm. the the examples you gave was J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, I'm sure there are other examples of very prominent uh fake white people in society who are at very high levels because they denied their true selves and uh and uh, impo- in, uh, were imposters and now there's a real chance for reparations let's just say that's a real possibility they could actually in their position be incredibly powerful allies so while I understand the, hey, man, if the money's coming, now you show up. But I would say consider not making that such a huge point because there may be some people who pop up who can be incredibly helpful towards the end goal. That's what I'm saying. Right. I can understand your point. But I'll, I'll not this is the last point I'll make on this, this particular just one subject. How would a Jewish person be viewed if they lived as a Nazi but then once the the money shows up for Jewish reparations they say oh no 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 you almost you almost perfectly described George Soros because that's exactly what happened with him and that that's and you see how he's castigated but do you see but do you see what he's getting for quote-unquote his people You make a valid point there. All right. But it doesn't. And I understand what you're saying. I understand, yeah. what you, I understand your point. You're saying they could be allies. Yeah. I, my only point is, I, to, and it's not <laughs> It's not to you. My point is to uh, Miss mm-hmm. uh, Johnson. Uh, what's her mm-hmm. name? Jones. Miss Jones is just go chill on that. That one point. Just say, hey, you know, here's the deal. ADOS, reparations. And, you know, don't sit around with a bunch of... Uh, uh, with a, a bunch of ADOS laughing about how those douchebags won't get anything because if you didn't live it for 10 years, we're going to hammer you. I'm just saying, 
it's a negative approach where you can always do that later. Get, get, let's right. get through I, it first and see, who, see if someone's uh, someone who knows what we'll learn about people who have been living this way. We're not. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's not. That's a, I, true. But I understand what you're saying, Mo. In my heart, of course, I understand what you're yeah. saying. It's like, hey, yeah, bro, true. screw that. I got it. I got it. And the point I want to make it, it from this whole thing is, and I'm glad we had this conversation. Me too. Um, but the point I want to make about this is she's so adamant about who should get reparations and she's knowledgeable on the subject, but it's missing from a 1619 project yeah, that's right. going to be published. In the well, of course. And, you know, that's my thing. It's like, are you going to be as stringent to say who can get it and 10 year rule and all of this? But then when it's convenient for you, you go, you know, silent. Oh, you on mean the topic. she goes coward? It's cowardly. Okay. So she's exactly like the ten. <laughs> it's called projection. Exactly like it's called projection. It's exactly okay. Well, what, well we agree on that. Dutch? What excuse? Can you hit that one time for yeah, me in Dutch? Sure. What you say, being yourself, with your cop door to health. You are uh, what you say others are. That is bingo. Uh, yes, that's exactly. It's, it's pure projection. Okay, well, we certainly agree on that. That she is right. a huge projector. <laughs> well, let's go and hear. We're going to listen to the Heritage Foundation, and they're go- and Mr. Ben Shapiro has Alan Guzlo. I, I, I think so. Guelzo. 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 Yeah. Yeah, something like that. He's gonna give his right wing perspective on the 1619 and Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Jones, excuse me. So let's talk about the 1619 project and the reward that was just given to it, the award that was just given to it by the Pulitzer committee. So there are serious holes in this project. I've been discussing some of them. It seems to me that the basic premise of the 1619 project is what the Pulitzer committee was rewarding here, not the essay that was graced with a 500 word correction. The, the, the basic premise of the 1619 project, having read the entire thing, was that American history was founded in evil, and, and basically that evil has infused the entire body politic in every aspect of American life. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the project? I think that nails it fairly accurately. First thing that the 1619 Project really would like to do is to teach school children, because that's really what's aimed at, is that capitalism is a form of totalitarianism. That's the, the, the one uh, essay, the second essay in the 1619 Project says this pretty plainly. Slavery is the model for modern American entrepreneurial capitalism. Second goal, we should pay reparations for slavery. They don't say this in the 1619 Project, but the lead editor of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has said this in other places. As though to reverse Lincoln's formula, that every drop of blood drawn by the lash had not been paid for by one drawn by the sword in the Civil War. Huh. So... (laughs) Alan, um, so much wrong with this clip. One, <laughs> well, now the Heritage uh, Foundation is, of course, very right wing, very right wing, and this is where the Republicans are a non-starter for enticing black people, people like this, make the uh, it a non-starter for black people to even consider voting Republican. Mm-hmm. Two, th- two things he said. One, he speaks as reparations as a terrible thing. Like, you know, like it's like, like, yeah. all, you know, you know what they really want. You know, <laughs> they want those reparations and we can't let that happen. And two, he comes with a thing that 
Lincoln said that every blood, every I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but every drop of blood that was lost um, from the lashes, that, right, that was shed. It was like basically every bl- drop of blood that was shed during the Civil War uh, bounced the books for all the blood that was shed during slavery. Well, we've heard in previous is, clips. Is, is that a real quote from Lincoln? Is that really what he said? I, this guy is a uh, Civil War historian, so yeah. I'm, I'm taking okay. <laughs> I'm taking right. him as his word. Yep. But it conflicts with what we've heard. Lincoln was okay with giving slaves forty acres and a mule, and it only changed because he died. Right. So <laughs> this guy is kind of off base here, in my opinion. Well, he, he, I mean, he, he uh, runs the James Madison program. You know, this, he's a, he's very set in his fundamental ways and understanding of how the country came to be. You're not going to change this guy's mind. He, he read, he read what he read. You know, this, (laughs) this is not, uh, this is not the kind of guy that will, that will ever, ever waver from that in my mind. The, the reason why I brought up this clip was to say, even he recognized reparations was missing from the 1619. Yes, and and that uh, uh, Miss Jones there uh, was, even though she's the lead editor, she really doesn't do anything about it in the project itself, which is so odd. Yeah, he picks up on it for sure. So why is that? And this is where my wheels start turning. I'm like, <laughs> huh. I've heard, I heard Nicole Hannah-Jones speak before. I've heard her be very adamant about reparations. But when she gets his huge piece on slave, multi-piece um, uh, in the New York Times to talk about slavery, one of the main topics is completely missing. Yeah. And she goes right up to the line. Yes. <laughs> in, the, in, in, the, in the land of our fathers, which is basically the genesis of slavery with the 40 acres and mule. But she doesn't cross that line. Now, did she get did so, she get a lot of pushback? And I'm sure she didn't just say this here on the Karen Hunter show, but she must have said this or been quoted other places as not not having uh, mentioned reparations in the project at all. Has, has, has this been a real uh, burden for her, an albatross around her neck? Yes, it was. Okay. And she was called out by the ADOS political group. I have to specify mm-hmm. um, for this by Miss Yvette Carnell. Oh, okay. I didn't catch, I didn't, I didn't clip it because it would have been kind of redundant. But she was, she was called out for it. Like, oh, you <laughs> talked about everything except for reparations, right? And from the Ados political group, they were like, you kind of stole our thunder, you know, with this piece, but you didn't carry it all the way through, right? Now, this made me think back to. She's been told what she can talk about and can't talk about. Well, she works for the New York Times. Hello. This sounds very similar to what Cory Booker said. Oh, this is a throwback clip from last was it last episode? Two episodes. From 35. Ago. 35. Yes. But I just want to say the reparations bill introduced for the first time in the Senate. Thank you very much. It was my I, I, I sponsored it in the Senate. We're seeing progress on these concepts that we couldn't even talk about. They weren't even being talked about. Reparations was a <laughs> that, major. That was it right there. We couldn't even talk about it. We couldn't even talk about it. Right. So I think she had the same conversation like, nah, especially with the New York Times leaning so hard for the Democrats. If you put that into the 1619, you have people lined up around the block to get it. Now you're spreading this whole reparation narrative to to the masses. So we have to find and, out who blocked that within the New York Times. I mean, unless the, the 
the uh, Democrat Party is literally on the editorial board, which it may be. That's that's a possibility, but we're you know we're going to dig into it. Yeah, you know. So they had uh, Zed uh, Giuliani. He was on the hill, one of our favorite, uh, one of my favorite beats, and he explains what's wrong with the New York Times sixteen nineteen project. Earlier this week, the 2020 Pulitzer Committee awarded its prizes. One went to Nicole Hannah-Jones for an essay she wrote for the 1619 Project. So the 1619 Project attempted to chronicle the impact of slavery 400 years after the first slaves arrived in America. And since publication, it's faced some criticism from historians, Marxists, and a lot of other different people. So much so that the New York Times ultimately issued a correction with an editor's note to the project and the Pulitzer Prize-winning essay itself. No, I didn't hear any of this. This is juicy. Yes, they had the <laughs> correction. I have the correction here. Um, I got notes everywhere, man. This thing is going. <laughs> this, is, this, is, <laughs> this is deep, man. Um, the correction was written by Jake Silverstein, and he said today we're making a clarification to a passage in the essay from the 1619 Project that has sparked a great deal of online debate. The passage in question states that one primary reason for colonists fought in the American Revolution was to protect the institution of slavery. The assertion has elicited criticism from some historians and support from others. Now, go down to the bottom. It said the five scholars that helped deepen our sense of this period's complexity, uh, one outcome of the, 16, the 1619 project that we, great, uh, that we are grateful for is how it has shown all of us, historians and journalists alike, how important it is to continue to work together to illuminate the past. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they had a long, they put a pretty long correction piece in here, but yet and still they won the Pulitzer. <laughs> well, their people have been winning Pulitzers uh, for the groundbreaking work they did on the Russian uh, collusion uh, case. Uh, they're not giving those back either. Right. So I just find it strange that, you know, um, Maybe the one, po- maybe the Pulitzer or, is just a piece of crap. We're gonna we're gonna that's, <laughs> that's gonna be uh, in their words illuminated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll illuminate that for you, everybody. Right. Uh, so let's go into the second clip from the hill. Journalist and friend of the show, Zed Jelani, he's been following the controversy, and he's going to explain to us now via Skype a little bit more. Zed, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Absolutely. So, Zed, you were one of the first people I ever saw that was discussing the 1619 Project and this essay in particular. Mm-hmm. Just break for us down where the controversy was. And I think, uh, just to be clear from the outset, this is not like a right-wing thing. The people who actually started um, uh, started criticizing it was the World Socialist Web, to be clear. Yeah, I think uh, largely they took issue with a number of facts that were stated uh, within the text. Um, one, the actual opening essay that received the the Pulitzer Prize, uh, made a number of claims, the most controversial of which was that uh, the defense of slavery was the impetus for the American Revolution. Uh, Now, there is a book uh, that posits that theory, but the theory is not considered to be credible. It never took off among mainstream historians. So it seems like they're trying to put the British in a good light. (laughs) It's an upside down world. It's very interesting what's going on here. It's, it's a lot of moving pieces here. Uh, you you have no reparations, which she's strong on outside of this piece. You have America being the bad guy and wanting to keep slavery is the reason why they fought the Revolutionary War. 
uh, you win a Pulitzer, even though it's full of factual um, it, um, errors, um, errors, omission, yeah, errors, errors and omissions. Yes. Right. Um, it, this seems like a very political or from the New know, York um, Times. I don't know. I don't see why they would be political. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked. I tell you. Wow. So, what is the end goal then? The end goal is just as always mind control, brain programming. It must be with the big hum. Yes, yes, and it even goes deeper than that. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, I'm glad uh, I glad I scheduled five hours for today. It, it, it's even more sinister. So, uh, uh, let's let's get into the third clip from the hill. They basically cherry picked information in some cases got facts completely wrong. And then at the same time, the Pulitzer uh, committee decided that this was the best commentary of the year. Right. Uh, normally, they don't award uh, prizes to uh, material that's considered not to be credible by experts in the field. And the way that I've looked at this, said is that the 1619 Project really was an effort kind of by elite cultural tastemakers and to say that the chief dividing line in America is race and it's not class. And I think that that is why the world socialist web took such issue with it as well well it's remarkable that they they talk about reframing the future and that they talk so little about the future or the contemporary present uh for instance they had an article about the wealth gap uh it didn't really cite anything after the 1930s or maybe even after redlining it didn't talk about uh social and economic reforms in the 1960s or 70s it didn't talk about the fact that federal government set up multiple programs outlaid billions of dollars to address redlining how did those programs work how did they not work uh it didn't talk about deindustrialization, changes in immigration, changes in welfare policy, uh, the fact that, for instance, uh, the family structure collapsed after civil rights reforms, not before it. The family structure was actually stronger under Jim Crow than now. <laughs> wow, there's a lot wrong with this. But, you know, man, we can get a Pulitzer for this show. I guarantee you. I, I would think so, because we talked about everything he just laid out they didn't talk about. And we talk about the stuff that she talked about. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's the that's the standard hey put us on the list (laughs) (laughs) from what i understand it's really easier than than you think it just it sounds really important because you know it's a pulitzer it sounds like a big deal but i think it's been uh, diluted over the years yeah, it's, it's like a Grammy or Oscar, right? That, I mean, pretty much record companies can body things. So. Mm, the Grammys, maybe Oscars. Yeah, I don't. There's there's ways to do it, but this is uh, this is I think more like the Nobel Peace Prize than anything. It's maybe it, it's not that oriented towards the actual the actual achievement. Is it's definitely more political. I guess the point I'm trying to say with the Oscars and Grammy is, if you want somebody to be taken seriously. They got to have one uh, of those. You, yeah, you give them a Grammy right quick. Yeah. Right? And then it's like, oh, yeah, Grammy award winning, blah, blah, blah. And it puts you at a certain level or gives you a certain clout. Uh, I think this is the same way with the Pulitzer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's, yes. A, it's a clout. It's a clout Clearly, point. it's not about accuracy <laughs> in reporting. That that we've got. Uh, so I guess we'll let uh, Mr. Uh, J- Jelani f- wrap up with the final clip from uh, The Hill. 
Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, I think what bank is it that's sponsoring the the series or what? Oh, is, Shell. 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 Yeah. I mean, Shell that oil. just like <laughs> says it all. Or I saw Wells Fargo way, I believe, sponsoring I D. Ray McKesson. That that event, by the way, was in Houston, which, of course, as you may remember, was battered by uh, Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. And many of those the underprivileged people who were just their lives were destroyed by her, by hurricane and displacement. You know that 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 company has bears responsibility for that. But I doubt Nicole Hannah Jones is ever going to write an article about Shell Oil and their responsibility with with, with the climate and what's happening uh, to underprivileged people in, in the yeah. city. Yeah, well, we'll Houston. hold our breath waiting. She, we she won't hold our breath on that one. About, uh, about the the Leviathan. Yeah. Well, thank you, Zed. I mean, you're not going to hear this anywhere else, and I very much appreciate your analysis on this. So thank you. Well, this is very interesting because, of course, I immediately understand <laughs> what this is. What you know, uh, I've learned this term, uh, problematic fave, mm-hmm. and uh, so this is this is the problem when you have any type of sponsorship, and and this is so lame of the New York Times to uh, to allow all of this to happen. Um. But now, was it the, it, the, the she personally was sponsored by Shell from Houston? They, what, the piece wasn't sponsored, was it? Was there any uh, any Shell Oil uh, native ads or sponsorship around the the sixteen nineteen project itself? No, no, no. They they Just definitely her. laid in, in 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 the shadows okay. on this one. Uh, as far as what what the what was presented in the piece, uh, but I found it one thing I that. I want people to recognize now these are the same type people from the New York Times that will tell you, you know, people of color, colored people. Yeah. Thank you. Um, would, um, they're impacted by fossil fuel and, um, uh, greenhouse gases and natural, (laughs) uh, natural disasters and climate change. But then they'll take, they're, you know, get their palms greased by Shell Oil Company. Yeah, well, it, it, of course, in this case, it's even <laughs> worse because the Shell Oil Company, um, you know, they have uh, they are responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of OG ADOS in Africa. And so, Easy, and Curry. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> I, you like the way I phrase that <laughs> OG ADOS in Africa. And, and, and that, of course, to see her sitting on and looking at it now on a brochure with a little shell, uh, logo above her head. I can see mm-hmm. why people got a problem with that in general. Forget it. You know, then you've got the whole Green New Deal cl- cl- uh, crowd and everything, even though right. shell pays for most of that as well. But again, it's, I, again, it's politicization. Of stuff that really doesn't, to me, it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter to what, what the 1619 project is about or what it's trying to do. It's all ancillary noise, but it's bad optics. Well, it goes to show you these people are disingenuous in their, in their <laughs> motives. Of course uh, they are. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Make me laugh. Moving on, to, moving on to the Karen Hunter show, she had Dr. Greg Carr, which me and him have had words uh, <laughs> Real? Oh, that's right. That's right. I do remember yeah. this. Yeah, he's not yeah. no no uh, fan of the mo. He's a mo no, hater. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was early on in my um, in, uh, in my start what, of my. Um, was that on the Star podcast. Show? Is that the Star Show where that happened? Where that happened? No, actually, it was on the um, Howard University radio show. I actually that's pulled right. my car over and called in. <laughs> that's <laughs> right, a, right, 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 right. Yeah, we had a back and forth, but him and Karen Hunter have a conversation on how you win a Pulitzer. 
Absolutely. I, I, I was waiting all week because since we talked last week, of course, I think you must have had a crystal ball because you said on social media you predicted that Nicole oh. would win a Pulitzer. Um, yeah. I, I thought um, the work, the amount of work that went into 1619 and the reframing of history, which, you know, people could argue whether it was 100% accurate or whatever, but I thought the conversation that, that was started with the 1619 Project around reframing America was so important. And Pulitzer... Uh, again, yes, uh, you said, because I have one. Yeah, uh, we won a Pulitzer. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, yeah. I won a Pulitzer as part of an editorial uh, board uh, on, at the New York Daily News. And uh, prior to winning, the year before, my boss said, we're going to win a Pulitzer. And so we were oh. like, what? Yeah. So, no, but there was a plan, right? So you have to have 12 to 15 editorials. They had to be perfect, no typo. Most of them, you know, the Pulitzer board, they're, they're doing their homework, they're reading. But what they're looking for is a problem that is being solved or they're looking for something that spins the, the world on its ass, right? Wow. Okay. Well, jeez, mm-hmm. what a racket. What, what, did ca- what, what did you catch there, Mr. Curry? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's really important you got no typos because that, I mean, that's the bar you got to get. You got to be able to do a spell checker. If you can't operate Microsoft Word, then you can't get a Pulitzer. So there's, a, for a lot of journalists, a high bar. Uh, but then you got to do the little uh, little jumping through hoops. You got to have 15 of those suckers perfectly spelled. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be solving a problem that doesn't need solving or even exists. And that's how you win a Pulitzer. A couple of things with this clip. One, she even identified herself that this thing might not be 100% factual, right? She, <laughs> no, right. She, she, but she whatever. She actually it. said whatever. You know, whatever. It doesn't matter as long as we're changing history, reframing. But you went a Pulitzer for not being factual, but you have to have all no typos. That's a hell of a uh, <laughs> that's a hell of a standard. Uh, Two, Miss Jones is a frequent guest on Karen Hunter's show. If Karen Hunter has the formula, now this is why I speculate. Um, if Miss Karen Hunter has the formula, how to win the Pulitzer? Uh, maybe she gave Mrs. Jones the blueprint. This is how you do it, mm. and then Miss then Karen goes on the, to to uh, prophesy that uh, Nicole is going to win this thing. Uh, and then she happens to turn around and win it. I find that very... Uh, the, the way I see this is, and this is like I said, pure speculation on most part. Um, Karen and Nicole have a conversation. Well, you you know, you got this 1619 thing. You know, uh, you could win a Pulitzer. You know, if you, you know, make 15 essays, no typos, I know, I know people, you go ahead and do that, you know, and this is how it works. This is my, this is how I think this works. Wow. Okay. So there's, um, I, I was just thinking about us for a moment. Mm-hmm. So there's Pulitzer prizes, you know, there, I think they're also doing podcasts now. Pulitzer, there's going to be a Pulitzer for a podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, we, of course, let me just see if that's correct. What I'm saying here podcast pulitzer because we're going to put this to the test yes podcasts can win pulitzers now 
Okay, and they've announced it. Good. I'll put that in the show notes because <laughs> you know what? This show is solving a problem that I think they would really like. There's no or co- not. <laughs> well, no, I think we could we could dress. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We could we could yeah. dress it up to make it sound like we're superheroes. And oh my gosh, they're having wait. This is the conversation America should be having. See, if we just do that with that voice, this is the conversation America should be having. This podcast is very Pulitzer Prize winning. See, we can do this. I think we got a shot. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll get right on that. In Mr. Uh, Jelani's interview with The Hill, he brought up the fact that even the Marxists were pissed off at uh, Nicole Jones. I found this interesting article on... World Socialist website, which is published by the International Committee uh, of the Workers' Party. Yeah, of the Fourth International, which I don't know what that all means. That's a pretty long time. The the International is the the Socialist's uh, manifesto. Hold on. Go ahead. Continue. I'll I'll figure it out for you. Who was the the first three? Because we're in the fourth one. The fourth, um, inter- yeah. okay. The fourth international is a revolutionary socialist international organization. There we go. They they mm-hmm. are the followers of Trotsky. So it's it's just an organization. Cool and, logo. And the, cool logo. This is the real. This is the real left. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is the, the, this the hard left. Uh, <laughs> they look at Bernie and they and they hang a left. Exactly. Well, luckily, I found a reader for my article, and here it is. The New York Times 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Shell Oil and Mass Killings in Africa, by Trayvon Austin and Bill Van Auken, 18th of December, 2019. On Wednesday, December 11th, Nicole Hannah-Jones, lead author of the New York Times 1619 Project, delivered a speech in Houston to inaugurate the Emancipation Park Conservancy's lecture series depicting the Black experience. The appearance was part of a nationwide lecture tour in which Hannah Jones is promoting the 1619 Project's reframing of the history of the United States as an unending racial struggle of whites against African Americans. The American Revolution of 1775 to 1783 and the Civil War of 1861 to 1865, according to Hannah Jones, were sham events unrelated to the struggle for equality and the eventual destruction of slavery. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln were racist hypocrites dedicated to the defense of white supremacy. Man, America just sucks. What a, <laughs> what a loser country, man. We're no good. And that's, thank you, New York Times. I feel better now. Well, they, there is some hypocrisy with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham of course, Lincoln. And of we're gonna, course. we're going to point that out later in the show. But did you recognize that voice? No. Who, who was that? I'll, let's get to the next clip. I'll give you another shot. Okay. In the next clip. Here we go. Hannah Jones's appearance in Texas was sponsored by the Houston-based Shell Oil Company. This is the U.S. subsidiary of the oil and gas corporate giant Royal Dutch Shell, which is confronting international public outrage over its involvement in massive human rights abuses in the African country of Nigeria. The focus of protests has been Shell's collaboration with the Nigerian government in the suppression of the Ogani ethnic group. 
The company currently faces multiple court cases over its complicity in the murder of thousands, including the Nigerian dictatorship's hanging in 1995 of the well-known Ogoni writer and environmental activist Ken Sarawiwa. Hannah Jones is unsparing in her condemnation of the moral failings of the democratic revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. She can barely contain her contempt for those who failed to leap out of the historical epoch in which they lived and embrace the rhetoric of the 21st century middle-class identity politics. But the unforgiving code of ethics she imposes upon the historic figures of the past does not seem to apply to herself. Well, it sounds like a white girl. That's all I can say. I don't recognize the, the voice. That is one Mrs. Hold on one second. That's uh, Dame Jennifer. No. Oh, that's our Dame Jennifer? Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. This that is was really good work. I, you know, I'm like, I thought this was an audio book or, uh, or, right. or some reading <laughs> of it. Oh, my gosh. This is fantastic. She is perfect. Perfect, right? Yeah, um, when we when we need something red, we don't have a clip. Yeah, that's great. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, I was surprised by that. Now I know. Yeah, this is that. This is value for value at work, folks. Um, because we called out last week. We, we got did. a lot of volunteers. <laughs> we readers. did. We did. It was great. I mean, it at least had to be ten, if if not one, but I mean at least ten. But so I want to thank everybody. But yeah, she she came through, and and it helps the quality of the show immensely. I, I got to tell you, I, w- I was sure this was a professional from something. I was like, why is, why is Mo asking? I'm like, what celebrity? I'm trying to identify this voice. Like, it's really nice. And, I, and, I, and I'm also listening to what's being said. I'm like, I don't. Dame Jennifer, of course. Right. Nice one. Uh, we appreciate it. Yes, we but do. What we heard in this last clip is actually white supremacy at work. <laughs> this, is, this, this is the real white supremacy here. Yeah. When, uh, let's just go through and watch, hear what she says. Um, their involvement in mass human um, rights, uh, massive human rights abuses in the African country of Nigeria. And they're working with the government. Uh, they're, and they're in collaboration with the Nigerian government uh, in the suppression of the Ongani uh, ethnic group. This is this is what real white supremacy looks like. The real uh, one, yeah. The real the, white the supremacy. Real, yeah. yeah, the real, I mean, yeah, because, and that's when you when you call everything white supremacy, you take the emphasis off of this. Uh, it even had a lynching. It says here, it says, including the Nigerian dictatorship hanging in 1995, a well-known Agani writer, and, uh, environmental activist, Ken Saro Waiwa, I think that's how you pronounce it, but yeah. Wow. She's partnering up with, with, <laughs> with some. Well, now you know. I know people from Shell too. It's Royal Dutch Shell, uh, although uh-huh. uh, the Queen of England I think owns the majority of it now. Um, but yeah, that, this is not the optics you want, <laughs> and it's it's a head shaker. To, well, you know, the obvious uh, reasoning for this would be that Shell has guilt, and they want to to coin the phrase whitewash uh, what's going on with them and their corporate history maybe or other they, maybe they have other motives oh wouldn't surprise me did you find anything let's listen to the next clip shell's history in africa has long made it an international pariah 
In the 1980s, it was described as the worst corporate collaborator of apartheid South Africa, systematically violating sanctions to provide oil that fueled the racist regime's repressive apparatus. It also carried out mining operations in the country, including at its Reetsbrut coal mine, where striking workers were beaten and forced back to work at gunpoint. Its support for apartheid provoked an international boycott movement against the oil giant. Just two years ago, Amnesty International released an 89-page report titled, A Criminal Enterprise? Shell's Involvement in Human Rights Violations in Nigeria in the 1990s. Yeah, there's, I think there's been a long-running lawsuit over that, too. There's a couple of them, but I think this was, it's been in the courts, I believe, for a very long time. And maybe that's what they're trying to do, is deflect nah, from those nah, lawsuits? No, couldn't be. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, at least the, um, the socialists think so, or as they go continue on this article. Shell's exploitation of oil in Nigeria goes back to the period of British colonial rule. After independence, it became the most important economic actor in the country, with immense power over its government. Shell's operations centered in Agoniland, located in the southernmost part of the country along the Gulf of Guinea. Fifty years of exploitation and Shell's continuous oil spills have left the region an ecological disaster, with its soil no longer viable for agriculture and its groundwater massively contaminated with carcinogens. The Agani people saw their livelihoods destroyed while they received nothing from the billions of dollars that Shell extracted from the region. In the early 1990s, under the leadership of Sarah Wiwa, MOSOP emerged to challenge the destruction of the region by Shell and the Nigerian government. As the protests grew, Shell called upon the government to provide security protection for its facilities while the company offered logistical support in deploying heavily armed police and troops against the Agani people, providing them with transportation, salaries, and even weapons. In some cases, those sent in to murder, rape, and torture wore uniforms bearing the Shell logo. Over the course of these operations, it's estimated that 27 Agani villages were raided, leading to the deaths of as many as 2,000 people and the forced displacement of 80,000 more. Rape was employed as a weapon to intimidate the population, and prisoners were routinely tortured. It truly is a head-scratcher that this project got wrapped up <laughs> with Shell. <laughs> it's, it's really like, do you have shit for brains? It's like so easy to see what these guys are up to. And uh, so, yeah, wait, they, there was a Nigeria filed a $1.1 billion lawsuit against Shell Oil and any oil uh, in 2018. And uh, I think so far Shell has paid out $55 million to somebody <laughs> of the $1.1 billion requested. So there's, you know. And we've talked about these people of uh, being in the room and you get in the call. Hey, Shell calls you. Hey, we need to clean up this mess. We need a distraction. And Mrs. Jones complies. She's she's a co-conspirator with colonizers. Now, does she have any response to this that she did that? Do we have any? I'd love to know what I she could, was thinking. Couldn't find anything anywhere. Oh, she just let that slide, huh? And, wow. and of course, I, I'm 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 speculating here, but I would assume with her political leaning, she would consider herself a feminist as well. I mean, because these kind of things go hand in hand, but you're taking money from people who use uh, rape as a weapon. Yeah. With a, with a, with a uniform well, logo. 
<laughs> hey, everybody, it's, it's your friendly shell rapist here. Scary, man. How does that work? I, I, I tell you, it blows me away. And, and as you said, it, and even in the article, it says, meanwhile, another lawsuit was brought by the Oguni uh, villagers and yep. friends of Earth, um, Earth Netherlands over the environmental devastation of the Niger Delta region has been fought by the company for the past decade with two planets dying in the meantime. Yeah. And, and of that's course, in, it's a Dutch group that, that is doing part of this activism. And that's because it's, it's a partially Dutch company. So, yeah, absolutely. And it's this is well known. And, uh, and Shell's not the only one. BP has done similar things. Horrible. in I think uh, Pakistan or India. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but in this case, it's just interesting you that they would take this. But yeah, again, it's like look at all of the clean energy um, initiatives and foundations. Many of them, you'll see Shell right there. Well, this is where I really start to dig deeper. <laughs> and before I get into this next set of clips, uh, continue on with this article, we have to remind people. Who the boule is. And uh, we have now uh, stepped forward to have a discussion about the black male secret society known as Sigma Pi Phi, uh, acronym the boule, B O U L E. Uh, we will do our best to show you the information related to the boule. Uh, that's what this lecture is about. I could give the entire lecture and quote every inch of the documentation without looking at it. I know them that well. But this is my responsibility, my night, to show you the information so that you could look at it with me and double affirm the fact that much of our black press, as much as we like it, has not been honest in talking about this group of black men, for they respect it very highly and never speak negatively against it. And who was that again? We've played this clip, right? That's Steve Coakley. Right, okay. He's the he's the OG on the boule. Right. Um, and as you heard him say, that the press has been silent on, on the boule. But I'll go one further than that and say that the press is pretty much made up of the boule, as we pointed out on the <laughs> yes. previous 36 yes. <laughs> episodes of this podcast. <clears throat> and just for a reminder, we're going to let Steve Coakley continue to remind you of the other factions of the boule um, that are associated with the boule. And all the Greeks, the Alpha, the Kappa, the Omega, and the and the and the Sigma. Show you right. The AKA, the Zeta, the Sigma, Gamma, Rho, and the Delta. They will all be informed publicly. Please do not have a public manifestation of the Greek thing. Don't have a big dinner. Don't have a big reception. Don't put it in the paper that you're coming. Because I suggest to you that we're going to start to visit you at your things. That's right. And ask you to prove your Greek thing on the spot. So we make a suggestion that we're in a process of penetrating a group of circles. And that these circles are webs which are numerous organizations just beyond the boule. 
I'd forgotten so, about that. Did he? Uh, did they ever penetrate to the circles and expose them properly? He did, but this is why I continue the work. <laughs> yeah. right about, exactly. Exactly. This is this is where the rabbit hole became the boule hole. <laughs> Let's get into the boule hole. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's continue with number twenty six. The event in Houston underscores the fraudulent and class character of the 1619 Project. Hannah Jones's appearance on a platform paid for by Shell Oil makes her politically and morally complicit in the oppression of the Aghani people. Her staggering hypocrisy and moral blindness is not merely a personal characteristic. It is typical of an ultra-egotistical, self-absorbed, and affluent petty bourgeois social stratum determined to make as much money as possible regardless of where it's coming from. It's not at all clear how Hannah Jones' racialist interpretation of history, which claims that North American slavery and all subsequent forms of discrimination in the United States stem from white people's allegedly inbred and intractable hatred of African Americans, would serve to explain her own apparent indifference to the crimes of Shell Oil against modern-day Africans. As, as they pointed out here, what they say, the bourgeoisie? Yes, <laughs> that pretty much explains the this one sentence explains the boule in a nutshell. And it says it is typical of an ultra egotistical, self-absorbed and affluent petty bourgeoisie social stratum determined to make as much money as possible, regardless of where it comes from. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah, that's the definition of the boule up and down. Well, we want to see who that bourgeoisie elite is. And I think uh, this next clip, 3.1, would tell us who, who we're dealing with. Shell used Hannah Jones, who was only too willing to be used, as part of its public relations operation aimed at diverting attention from the company's crimes as they face fresh exposure. Sponsoring an appearance by Hannah Jones allows Shell to posture as an intrepid corporate fighter against racism. Moreover, the 1619 Project's obsessive focus on race conceals the essential economic interests that underline the business practices of Shell. Shell executives obviously sponsored the event in the expectation that endorsement of the 1619 Project would counteract the impact of ongoing lawsuits, and they could not have been disappointed by the results of their investment. Everything went exactly as planned. Shell basked in a moment of public adulation as the event moderator, Melanie Lawson, a local media personality, prefaced her introduction of Hannah Jones with a shout out. I want to take a moment first to recognize tonight's presenting sponsor. And you might know this name. It's a giant in our community, Shell Oil. If someone's here from Shell Oil, will you please stand or wave or all of the above? Do we have some Shell folks? There we go. The audience responded with an ovation in which Hannah Jones joined in. Yeah, don't be shy about this. Shell people stand up so we can thank you. We appreciate you. We know this event would not be possible without your very generous donation, and we appreciate your continued support of Emancipation Park Conservancy. All right, that is Dame Jennifer's sweet spot now. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh man, she nailed she that read. It. She nailed that read. Hey, folks, any of these cool shell folks here? Yeah, exactly. Very funny. Excellent. Excellent. I could not do that to say no. My life. No. Uh, Imagine doing it for real in front of the shell people. That's even crazier. You do that. Well, some names popped up here too. Melanie Lawson. Yes. Well, I, I had to go and look up Miss Melanie Lawson, <clears throat> and let me go. 
open up her file here. Uh-oh. Um, you got a file at Mo Central. Yes. Put her on alert. Okay, Miss <laughs> Melanie <laughs> Miss uh Melanie Lawson. This is from her bio and she says despite the glitzy circles she mixes in and no matter how far away from home she travels, Melanie's favorite stories are about the Houston rich multi-ethnic communities. Uh, especially the stories about children and those quietly working to make a difference in their lives. She also belongs to the Houston chapter of Lynx and AKA Alpha Kappa Alpha yes, Sorority. Of course. <laughs> now she's, she's for, a newscaster. Is that what she does? Yes. For the people that don't know, the Lynx is the female version of the boule. So, and another thing popped up here. Uh, let me go back down. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all this on the fly, so just bear with me. These, uh, this Emancipation Park Conservancy. That word, I was like, conservancy? Let me look that up. So Ooh, that is a one. body concerned with the uh, uh, preservation of na- uh, nature, uh, specific species, or natural resources. <laughs> that's what oil companies that, are good at preserving <laughs> all of the right. above <laughs> and what species are you talking are you talking about so-called black people here yeah i guess uh, so another, <laughs> another thing is a commission or group uh officials controlling the port river drainage basin and latin this is a definitely an oil company or energy company word oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and it's uh, also it's the conservation of wildlife and the environment. So I went and looked up this Emancipation Park Conservancy and the leadership of it. Mm-hmm. All right. Let so <laughs> going down the I can't wait. Going down the list. Going down the list. The chairman of it uh, is one Mister uh, Raymond Manning, and he's a he's an energy guy. He's the CEO partner um, CEO of a partnership. I mean, Partners for Energy of North America. And if you go down to his bio, Manning has served on the board of the Urban League Young Professionals and currently active in the Houston Area Urban League, which is Boule. Uh, next on the list. Oh, it, oh, it gets better. Hold on. Uh, the vice chair, chairwoman is Jacqueline W. Bostick. Uh, it says here she also served as the national vice president of Jack and Jill of America. That's the children Boule. Um, <laughs> it's the mini boule. No, yeah, this, this is this is the, how you, the feeder the system. Jack and Jill. You got, I'd never heard of the Jack and Jill. Oh, uh, we're we're about to go all the way down the rabbit hole. Oh, brother! She also has been active in the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep. Next is uh, the treasurer that whether who holds the money is Yvette E. Mitchell, and it says Yvette E. Uh, Yvette is a twenty-year veteran of Chevron, another oil company. Um, and it says here she's um technology chairman for the Western area, the Lynx, uh, and Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, and a twenty two um twenty two years of consecutive service for the uh, AKA. Hmm. So that's that's who makes up this um Houston's uh, Emancipation Park Conservancy. Yeah, these are full-time jobs. That, that's what they do. It's, it's to, uh, as you already pointed out, is to balance out the destruction that often comes with uh, the harvesting of natural resources. It's a dirty business. Mm-hmm. And they go into these uh, communities and they build these uh, 
you know, um, the conservancy is like a basically a, I have some background on that. It says that, and this comes from the Business Insider. It says the Emancipation Park Conservancy, which was established in June uh, 2015 to oversee a century old park, a uh, city park with the same name of the, uh, within the city of Houston has selected its first executive director. And that's, um, Miss um, uh, Lucy Breadman, and you know she was appointed by Raymond Manning. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the article itself, it says companies in this article: Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> Can't make it up. This is great. <laughs> you made this stuff up. So now we understand who. I think this is how it goes. Shell Oil says uh, we need some coverage. These Boule members say, okay, we need to find some coverage. They find a 1619 project. They fund it. They tell Miss Hannah Nicole, no, you can't talk about uh, reparations, though. That's no good. And New York Times complies because that, that's no good for the political timing of it. And she complies. Yes. So, so that, 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 that's how this whole thing works. Uh, and we have a final clip from the article. Uh, if you want to go ahead and play 4-2. Uh, Moreover, Hannah Jones's association with Shell is of an entirely voluntary character. Jefferson and Lincoln were born and lived in an historical situation in which slavery was a major element of the economic structure of the North American and world economy. What objective historical factors have compelled Hannah Jones to associate herself with and profit from collaboration with Shell Oil? What excuse does she have, other than personal self-interest, for appearing on a platform provided by Shell Oil? Having promoted herself as the avenging angel of American history, Hannah Jones is obligated to reveal all the facts related to her participation at an event sponsored by Shell. Did she receive any form of remuneration for her appearance in Houston? Why is she serving the publicity needs of a corporation branded as a criminal enterprise complicit in the murder, rape, and torture of African men, women, and children? Okay, so very loaded there. Um, I do have to interject some uh, reality that many, many nonprofits, typically $1 million and less, are Mm -hmm. funded by corporate philanthropy. Corporate philanthropy is, and it's interesting because this comes very much from the same group of people uh, who want to uh, protect everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, you're you're shamed as a corporation into doing things for the greater good. Now, almost every corporation um, does things for their community. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's, and in Austin, we have, uh, a lot of uh, building construction companies, and they support the Ronald McDonald House, and they have budgets specifically for that. And it makes sense. You want, if you keep your community healthy and uh, and vibrant, you're going to be able to build more. So it's not, it's not abnormal. Dell, uh, the computer company here in Austin, has huge foundations who in turn um, give their money to small nonprofits to do all kinds of, of little things. Um, so... This is taking place at Shell in all different areas. Um, it is cherry-picking to say, oh, this is the one. Uh, and I can't fault Shell for... This is this is how the business is... It's how all businesses are run. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take out as much 
insurance, uh, public relations insurance as possible. I mean, look at the, um, in the 80s, not in the 90s, uh, specifically look at Reebok and Nike with the Human Rights Now pushback uh, for, you know, uh, for tiny children gluing their damn sneakers together. Um, and and how horrible those conditions were, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, right. it's it, um, Miss uh, Hannah Jones could have chosen from any number of very appropriate uh, corporations for their philanthropic um, attachment. Mm-hmm. Dell is is a great example. So I too am very interested. What is she really that stupid or was there some huge prize for her to do this? Was she really that stupid or was that big biscuit really that big? Ah, They always give me a biscuit on my birthday. I would. I bet you had a whole hunk of butter, a whole stick of butter, <laughs> that, that butter biscuit. <laughs> but, wow. We, and, and I'm not. My problem as with all the things I bring on this show is the hypocrisy. Oh, sure. Now, this will be the same person that tell you about the um, the patriarchal system. White privilege. And, uh, white privilege, uh, rape culture, uh, how environmental and uh, 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 fossil fuel impacts people of color worse than anybody color else. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then she, uh, <laughs> then she takes a check. And you're not even allowed to talk about reparations. Now, did she take? Do we know she took a check? Do we have? Did, they, did this uh, any any further reporting on this? No. The reason why I'm saying you take a check is this. Not maybe not directly from Shell, but I'm sure she's being compensated by the New York Times. Something. Yeah. And the New York Times is being compensated by, by Shell. Shell. Yeah, you're right. So, and you look at the players that's from this. Um, all the players out of Houston. There's something funny going on, but I, I, I digress on the. On the well, but but bottom line is this type of funding of projects ha- typically has a downside, which is the I think the beauty of our show here is we don't have to deal with all of that. Now, of course, we're not traveling first class to Houston and hanging out and drinking and the caviar is ready for us, but. Um, it ruins stuff. It ruins stuff. I don't know how she can live with herself, quite honestly. I don't either. And I'm glad you brought that up about the value for value and who really supports us. So I think that's a great segue into our, our donation segment. I, I like new money. I don't know if you do, but I, I hate old money that's wrinkled and dirty and got all the diseases on it. <laughs> I like new money. And when I give um, when I give things to people, I like to give stacks of money. It's fun. You ever had a stack of new money? <laughs> Have you? You haven't? Have you? A little stack. A little. Oh. <laughs> and so I, I, I made you know the big stack where it was brand new. And I like brand new money. I just I don't want any money around me. Is not. I'd almost rather have a, a new one than a brand than an old twenty. Now, that's kind of dumb, isn't it? But there's something about new money that excites you. <laughs> you like hundred dollar bills? Oh yeah, I like oh. new money too. Oh, most beautiful thing on earth is a hundred dollar bill. I hadn't seen a woman <laughs> as good looking as a hundred dollar bill. 
There's something about a hundred dollar bill that excites you. That's right, everybody. It is time to thank our producers for episode uh, number thirty-seven of MoFax with Adam Curry. We're coming up on uh, on our on our on our annual in uh, in a bit here. Yeah, it's moving pretty fast. This is uh, a show where, as we just discussed, there's no commercial interest that's paying us to say anything. There's no advertising. We also don't have to do any meetings. But to keep the work going, we do need support. And that is not just financial. It's all kinds of support that people uh, um, can do. And this is really what the beauty of value for value is. Um, Something you may do for us could be incredibly valuable to the show um, our show may be very valuable to you, and you, only you can determine what that means. So we like to say, um, consider it uh, two hours. You could have gone to a movie. Um, you might have spent $50 for your drinks and your tickets if you took a date. Was the last, or when we're done, we're an hour and a half into it or so, but after two, two and a half hours, was that the same value or not? It doesn't matter. All we care about is that you listen, have a good time, and return some value from time to time. And our top executive producer for today is a shining example, Dame Jennifer Buchanan, um, who sent it. I'll just read the note here that we got from her. I'm throwing my hat into the ring of available female readers to replace robots as needed. See, another cool thing about this show, everybody's doing AI and automation. We're turning that ship around. We're going from robots to chicks. And she says, I promise not to make it sound like Dvorak's Law and the 900 number ad, which are, she has done other work for, uh, for, uh, for us and for our tribes. Um, so we, we value this as priceless. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your first, um, your first valuable contribution. And, of course, you are uh, one of our two executive producers for today's MoFax with Adam Curry, episode 37. Also in the executive producer category, and remember, these are real credits. You can use them anywhere credits are recognized, uh, and you can put them on your uh, your CV, on your uh, resume. Get jobs or impress people. With $55.66, the anonymous film student says, Hey, gents, I've been listening from day one and feel bad for not donating, but I get so much value from this show that I actually cited Charles Woods rioting in the movie theater, quote from episode 28 in an essay. Oh, this is great. The subject, which I developed (laughs) from this quote, was, Media's most important function is to serve as a pressure release valve for society. I got a B plus on the paper, and I have and I have this podcast to thank. Sorry for the long note. I just finished my semester on Monday and got hired at an entry level job at a post production facility. So I'm pretty drunk. Thanks for all you do. I wish I wasn't so broke. Or I'd donate more. Semper Fi says the anonymous film student and uh, possibly a, a member of the Marines. Fifty five dollars sixty. Thank you. You're in the credits as such, and we really appreciate it. Um. Our first associate executive producer is Style and Design, $50. Found Mo Facts through the Grimerica show. There you go, Mo. Great appearance. I forgot to mention that. It was a couple weeks ago, wasn't it? A couple weeks back, you did the Grimerica show? It was right before I went down with the sore throat. That's right. Okay, so a month ago. It was a while back. Um found Mo Facts through the Grimerica show, which is funny because I'm an avid listener and donate to No Agenda. I've listened to several episodes and have really enjoyed them all, especially episode 32, No Sebo. Yeah, I was a favorite. I will continue to work through the backlog as you produce new episodes. Absolutely. And thank you again for your support. James Niemeyer supports us with $36 and says, Hey, Mo, last donation when I wrote, quote, 
you were a little hard on Diddy last night. I was making a reference to the meme about the Leave It to Beaver show. Did you ever watch Leave It to Beaver? Yeah, of course. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way, actually. Okay, so that makes sense. It goes like this. Gee, Ward, don't you think you were a little hard on the beaver last night? <laughs> Sorry for the voice. I didn't have enough room on... Uh, go ahead. No, it made sense now once I uh, got in... Well, yeah, well, yeah like once you. we get that, yeah, it's, I think you need right. the voice to go ro- along with it. Didn't have enough room on the cash app to explain it all. Anyway, I don't know if the joke translates very well across cultural lines, but trust me, it was very funny in my head. Loving the show. Woosahs for all. Woosah. 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 I'd say that it definitely, Leave it to Beaver, definitely crosses all cultural lines. Torben Peterson, $33.33. No note, but magic numbers are uh, are recognized and appreciated. Connor Lawrence, also 3333. Uh, in the morning, gents. I think my note from last week never got sent. Sorry for the mix up. Just the usual gratitude with a few questions for y'all. Hope you two and your family are healthy. Yes, we're all great. Thank you. Question from Mo Do you plan on doing an episode on the following topics? Religion in the ADOS community and Malcolm X, similar to the Martin Luther King uh, one. Yes, yes to both. Yes to both. Question for Adam. Have you seen the documentary Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind? If so, do you think this is a deep state nuge? (laughs) Or is it legit? You two are the only ones I can get an accurate answer from on that. Well, I'm just going to guess. I have not seen it. Uh, However, I'm going to search for this right now. Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. And if this has anything to do with the Star Academy then, uh, yeah, I'll probably say I think it's uh, uh, more entertainment than anything. But let me see who produced this thing. Is this, uh, do you know anything about this, Mo? No, I, this, this, this is news to me. I think I may have to look. To, I, had a, I thought it might be these guys who were always, they're all over, the, they were on Rogan. Um, I'll have to watch it. I'll get back to you. But uh, if it's a Star Academy, which I can't see offhand, so it might not be, uh, then I'm very skeptical. Those guys are entertainers. Um, Goes on to say, it's been a long road for most of us, but I feel in my bones that the storm is passing and we'll see the sunshine soon. In 1 John, he wrote that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. The word can be used for good and for evil, but the onus is on us to choose for good to exit our mouths and enter our ears. That is why I mean it literally when I say that what you two do is the Lord's work, and no matter how deep the rabbit hole takes you, God brought you there for a righteous purpose. Myself and the rest of the listeners are living proof of this, and I thank you for this eternally. Can I get a goat woosa? <laughs> The goat Wusa for himself and Alyssa and for everyone out there who needs it. And Mo, could you please bless me with the real Mo karma, not the take that karma I needed from the source, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of the Colossus of Thought, the man we all come to hear every week. Mo karma. <laughs> <laughs> So exciting. 
Uh, Connor, thank you very much. Very nice note. 33.33 from you, and that's appreciated. Michael Marengo, $28.50. Also wants a Woosa goat jingle coming up. This donation is in honor of my grandmother. She was our Italian-American big mama in New Orleans. Almost everything you said about big the big... I said about the Big Mama episode applied to her, even down to her having sugar and pressure. At the end of the show, when I heard Bill Withers' grandma's hands, I had to pull over and see what I could afford to donate. The song means so much to me because my dad sang that to her at her uh, sang that at her funeral. By the way, if Adam can knight producers, you should be able to give an honorary degree in ADOS studies or something like that. Keep up the great work, Michael Morango. Very nice note, Michael. Thank you. And here is your goat, Wusa. 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 And rounding out our list for today of uh, people who have supported and uh, thus also produced the show, Shazir, Shazir, Shazir. $20 value for value. V4V is the note. Barbette Bonanza. No note, but $20. Thank you. No note also from G. McDonald, 1892. There's some code for you. Ken with $3.33. Value for value for the best podcast in the, in the known universe. And $2, but no note from Michael McGuirk. And we thank all of these producers who have uh, supported us for this show. And, of course, for many more to come. Um, this episode 37 of MoFax with Adam Curry. And you can support us. Oh, wait, I need to do is Did I get his, uh, the final? Yeah, we got the final wooses in there, right? Um, yes. You can support us. Uh, go to MoFax.com. This is where you can find out all about the show. Uh, of course, uh, links to other work that we do. Mo's YouTube stuff as well. And uh, if you want to go to the donation page directly, you can go to MoFundMe.com. It takes you straight into the MoFax.com donation page, M-O-E-F-U-N-D-M-E.com. And thank you all so much for supporting MoFax with Adam Curry. And can you do me a quick favor before we continue on? Can you give everybody else a uh, uh, Mo Karma? You bet. I'm sending you tons of good ass energy. Take that. Take that. Take that. You've got karma. There it is, everybody. Mo Karma. Well, the 1619 Project gave me an opportunity to address one of the mis- most misunderstood people and documents in uh, the slave narrative. Okay. And that's Mr. Abraham Lincoln. Very good. Good. All right. So there's top five things, and we have a list here, five things you may not know about Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, one thing is Abraham Lincoln was not an abolitionist. Did you, did you know that? Uh, you wouldn't know uh, it from the schooling and the education and the stories I heard. It was the man with the long hat. He freed the slaves. Right. It says in a three-hour speech in uh, Illinois in the fall of 1854, Lincoln presented more clearly than ever his moral and legal and economic opposition to slavery and then admitted that he did not know exactly what he sh- should be done about it within the uh, current political system. And contrast to that, uh, abolitionists knew exactly what should be done. Slavery should be immediately abolished and free slaves should be incorporated as equal members of society. All right. Number two, Lincoln did not believe blacks should have the same uh, rights as whites. Hmm. Did you know that? 
No, Mo, no. the man with the man with the hat freed the slaves. I don't understand. He was the 16th president of the United States. He said something about four score and seven years ago, and he freed the slaves. Can't you get that through your head? And he was a, was he a Republican? Oh my gosh, that's where it gets confusing. Oh, oh he, he's the party of Lincoln. No, they're the party of Lincoln. And you might want to uh, reconsider that um, that term or being uh, the party of Lincoln referred to as that. Yes. After after this uh, little segment that we have here, it says, though Lincoln argued that the founding fathers phrase all men create equal. And this, by the way, this is from the History Channel. Okay. If people want to know the source. Oh. Mm. Uh, it says, although uh, the phrase all men are created equal applied to blacks and whites, this does not mean that he thought they should have the same social and political rights. Uh, it says his views became clear during the 18. 18- 58 series of debates with his opponent in Illinois, uh, Stephen Douglas, who had accused him of supporting Negro equality. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> we can't have that. <laughs> it said in their fourth debate at Charleston, Illinois, on 18, uh, September 18, 1858, Lincoln made his position clear. I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races, unquote. Oh, hold on a second. My heart is breaking. That can't be my honest Abe. Yes. Hmm. And before we go on to get into three, four, and five, um... Let's just get into some clips on Abraham Lincoln. Title on the book is Abraham Lincoln's White Dream. What's that mean? It means that, contrary to what most people think, Abraham Lincoln's deepest desire was to deport all black people and create an all-white nation. It sounds like a wild idea now, and it is a wild idea, but from about 1852 until his death, he worked feverishly to try to create deportation plans, colonization plans, uh, to send black people either to Africa or to South South America or to the islands of the sea. On December the 1st, 1862, in which he asked Congress to pass three constitutional amendments. One, to buy the slaves. Second, to to declare free all people who had actually escaped. But the third one, his proposed 15th Amendment, asked Congress to allocate money to deport black people to another place. This leads to number three. He's speaking about number three. Lincoln thought colonization could resolve the issue of slavery. (laughs) So he wanted to buy us and ship us off. How do you like that? You you can't be speaking the truth. This is not the story of Abraham Lincoln. You're talking about some other guy. No, this is uh, from Mr. Lerone Bennett Jr. Uh, And... um, he wrote this that book when C-Span. he was. You wrote. He wrote that book about uh, Lincoln when he was like eighty or something. He was. He was getting up in age, I think, wasn't he? Right. This is written. Is this from two thousand? Okay. So, right. yeah. So that's number uh, four, and I guess we can continue on and let Mister Bennett uh, enlighten us more about Abraham Lincoln. And I make the point also, and and and. 
almost everything I say in here, I take from Lincoln or from documents of the time. It was not just something he wanted to push black people out. He had an idea of, 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 of this great, giant, vacuum sound, black people leaving and white people from all over the world coming here and creating this all-white nation. As a matter of fact, I say, as you know, in his I Have a Dream speech at Alton, Illinois, in, in 1858, he called for a haven, a white haven for free white people everywhere, the world over. Now, these are Lincoln's words. And the interesting thing about that is that he underlined these four words, free white people everywhere. He underlined them. This was his I Have a Dream speech. He was passionately committed to, to, to deporting black people and creating a white nation. Let me say an extenuation. Uh, he believed that that was the only way to solve the race problem. I, I found that offensive and, and strange, but he believed that that was the only way to solve the race problem. He said over and over again, he did not believe that black people and white people could live together in equality in the United States of America. <laughs> All right, I have a, a couple questions. You, yes. I mean, I know you for a little while now, and I, of course, am not thinking that this is news to you, that you that this is a great big discovery. No. Why is it that this is so? I mean, I, I don't want to answer my own question, but mm-hmm. but who has been standing up and saying this loudly? You know, uh, except for uh, Bennett Jr. on C-SPAN. You know, like is there anyone? of modern stature who says hold on a second this is not exactly the way it went no and Why i'll not? see your question and i'll raise you one more <laughs> okay. while was our 44th president the first black president quote unquote for first black president to be elected sworn in on lincoln's bible well uh that's how opt- far the narrative op- optics. goes. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> optics. I'm, uh, that's what I'm saying. Um, why do we? Wow, uh, that's a very and, that's a good question. And, and just to speak to the uh, the the one of the uh, letters that we saw in the donation segment in black churches. Well, this is inside baseball, folks. So uh, come closer. Um, we have watch night service where that's kind of like oh Lincoln uh, on you know New Year's Eve. Lincoln, you know, decided to sign, you know, free the slaves, right? That's that's the that's narrative. A, that's the story, and, and sure. It, and it's ingrained in us that he's the great emancipator. You know, he can't, like you said, he came in with his top hat and he just like put sent all the good guys down there to free the slaves. Hey, but hold on, hold on a second, War. hold on a second. Yes, he was. It's uh, it's just they cut off the clip. It's like he said, free the slaves. He said, free them, free the slaves, back to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, he it, said, well, if we have to free the slaves, uh, let's, let's put that in proper context. <laughs> if you really got to free them, <laughs> then we might as well free them over there. Right. They, they, they don't want to be here anyway. We got to, you know, send them on over, over to Africa. Now, 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 I, now, hold on a second. From mm-hmm. the thinking of the day, I'm sure that... Um, the uh, the Illuminati white people, uh, our sixteenth president included, I'm sure mm-hmm. I'm sure that was the thinking. Like clearly they don't want to be here. 
listen, uh, what was what was Lincoln's uh, wife's name? Mary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> listen, Mary. Clearly, these black people don't want to be here. Let's let's free free them back over there. Can't you just see that happening? I see it. Of of the day, right? Of the day, of the day. Maybe, but like I said, he didn't really. And he's quoted as saying this: If he could have freed the slave, if he could have won the war or ended the war without freeing the slaves, he would, he would have. have done that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think he was losing any sleep over deporting them. And isn't that amazing? Like, yeah, thanks for thanks for all that free labor. Uh, and yeah, you can you see your way out now. Now, uh, so, so so where was? I'm sorry to do this to you, but where was the 1619 uh-huh. project on this? Well, they didn't see Lincoln in favorable, uh, and, and we they spoke about it in previous clips. They uh, they said that he was a uh, part of, of a white supremacy, right? So they don't they don't view him. And I I just want to bring context that they raised that question. Okay. And then you here's the problem when you with sixteen nineteen when you discredit that that project, you kind of discredit, discredit all, ev- all of even, it. Yeah. Right. And Even that's the very things. dangerous. Yes. Yes. Because this, because apparently they had part of that right, and appropriately so. But they dressed it up in a whole a whole storyline that just what? Right. Uh, so we have Mister Allen Guzzo, uh, Guzzo that spoke for the Heritage Foundation. He re- he revisits the MoFact show <laughs> and he speaks on the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. It was a military proclamation. Lincoln is issuing the Emancipation Proclamation in his constitutional capacity as the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. It is a war powers proclamation because it is presumed in the Constitution, it's not specifically spelled out, but it's presumed that when the Constitution designates the President as Commander-in-Chief, it also clothes him with certain war powers. That phrase, war powers, is not actually in the Constitution, but the assumption has been that if you're going to be the Commander-in-Chief, there are certain war powers that pertain to that role. It was as a war powers proclamation that Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation. It is as a war powers proclamation that the Emancipation Proclamation declares free all the slaves then in Confederate controlled territory in the South. <laughs> Did you catch that? Yeah, the very end. Uh huh. Yeah, let me just roll it back so everyone else can catch it. Hold on. This here, I think it's about here. It is as a war powers proclamation that the Emancipation Proclamation declares free all the slaves then in Confederate controlled territory in the South. Yeah. He didn't free all the slaves. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> he didn't follow the law. No. He he freed them in the in the areas where he had no control over. <laughs> it was a it was a military tactic. Damn. I Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Didn't know that either. Let's destabilize that's, that's the destabilize the South. Yeah. By putting out this proclamation and you know, uh as a form of propaganda, and when the slaves see it in the South, they'll leave their post as slaves, come running north. Um, that'll destabilize, you know, all the efforts that they are providing to the Confederacy, and it'll be a big headache for you know for the South. Right. 
while we hold on to our slaves in union states. This is so the it truly was a war <laughs> tactic. Exactly. Wow. Did did you know all this, Mo? Are you just schooling me? Is that what you're doing here? Showing up once a week? Well, no, no. Well, I feel I, 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 I feel things. stupid. I feel really dumb. I didn't know this. No, you shouldn't. You should not feel stupid because this is the educational narrative. Yeah, sure. And every and everybody just complies to it. To the point where our forty-four black, forty-four president, who of uh, being so-called black uh, lineage, yeah, was sworn in on the and a constitutional lawyer. Uh, let's not forget that uh, was sworn in on Lincoln's uh, Bible. And when I saw that, I was like, that was another telltale sign. I was like, oh, you're you're about optics, not about truth. I am. <coughs> excuse me. I am uh, going to purchase Forced into Glory Abraham Lincoln's White Dream from mm-hmm. Lerone Bennett Jr. That's probably going to be something I'll be, I'll enjoy reading. And and the point I want to bring up about his book was he like he said he uses Lincoln's words. Right. It's not any speculation, it's not any uh well, I can take this out of context or maybe he meant it, meant it this way. He underlined these words. He wanted to create yes. America as a white nation. <laughs> yeah, under, that's the best part. That's the yeah, best let, part. Let me make sure I don't forget this. Who knew? <laughs> it's like a little yellow highlighter from back in the day. Right. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm sure people are saying, well, Mo Allen, he's a right wing talking, uh, talking head. So let's go to NPR and their, their take on uh, emancipation. Well, what the Emancipation Proclamation was, was a presidential proclamation, and it was part of the war um, plans. So that in essence, what the Emancipation Proclamation did was Lincoln realized that two things were happening. One is that there was a worry that um, European nations might support the Confederacy. There was also a worry about how do we get more and more people to fight for the Union cause? After the initial year, people were saying, well, you know what, I'm not sure I want to fight for this. Suddenly, Lincoln realized that he could have an impact on the South by taking away workers and labor from the South, encouraging people to then come north, join the Union Army, so therefore you'd have more soldiers, and add a moral tinge to the war. So all of that was behind Lincoln's thinking when the emancipation was issued. I think that an NPR, that, that they moved to these types of reports, and I'm not exactly sure how long ago this was done or what the... Uh, what the context of it was, but having mm-hmm. Lincoln being such a hero uh, for free, just add the narrative, right? The one I, I grew up with, uh, Lincoln, hero, freed the slaves, uh, fabulous guy, uh, very iconic mm-hmm. looking, great, uh, got a beautiful memorial for him. So that's the story we're sticking to it. But as um, as more and more people understand, and I think that's really what happened in the past election. Possibly, I would go back to the 2008 election, um, that Lincoln was a Republican, had to be countered. And I think that's that's, that's what you're getting here. It's like, we just, because why else do it? Especially as NPR. No, to discredit him. Why? Republican. I think that I think that is underway. I'm not sure how old this clip was, but I've been noticing this for a while. Yeah, because like I said, the Republicans always like to use two. This is the two talking points when Republicans try to communicate. And I'm not saying all. I'm talking about the Republican political yeah. machine. Yeah. When they try to communicate to black people, they say two of two things. 
One, you know, we're the party of Lincoln and Lincoln set the <laughs> slaves free. Just so you know. And, then, and two, you know, MLK was a Republican, uh, don't you? <laughs> Which we, we explored that too, why he yes. went Democrat, you know, but that kind of. Yeah. But I want to point out one, one thing about the word emancipation. Notice that when they talk about us, so-called black people, ADOS, foundational black, native blacks, however you want to say it, they always use the word that we were emancipated, not liberated. Ooh, yes, of course. Very big difference, too. Yeah. Emancipation means you were giving your freedom. White Americans were liberated from the, you know, from England because they took their freedom. Huh. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm look, yeah, you nailed you nailing it again. I'm looking at the <laughs> definition here, and there's a so the the first definition: the fact or process of being set free from legal, social, or political restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the second part is the freeing of someone from slavery, and it's an example is the early struggle for emancipation. So that that really means like the early struggle to have someone set us free. Right. That's words matter, man. And words this, do matter. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a you'll never hear word. the word liberty or liberation or anything used like that no. when you talk about the Civil War or or, or black people in America. It's always emancipated. Emancipated. Even yeah. though we were we were not emancipated. <laughs> um well if you were slaves in the Confederacy, you were emancipated, mm-hmm. but yeah. So I just, I just want to point that out. That's a, uh, that's wanna, a good one. I like that. So if you want to continue on with the second clip from NPR. What about the timing of it? Why did it come when it came on that day at that time? And as, and as you were just telling us, the U.S. was already two years into the war by the time it, it was signed. What, why that timing? Well, what's clear is that Lincoln felt that if he could end the war and restore the Union without ending slavery, that would be okay with him. But by the time the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, Lincoln realized that he had to do something bold. And part of the timing was that he had been working on this for the whole summer. But he realized that he didn't have the sort of moral power to let this go until there was a Union victory. Because after all, what had happened was if he had announced the Emancipation Proclamation and then there was a battle where the Union lost, it would seem like just words on a paper. So what he did was he waited to release the Emancipation till after they won the victory in Antietam in 1862. That then made it seem in the minds of many, Europeans and not, that the Union was winning, and it gave more power, more moral authority to the emancipation. My boy was a strategist. Yeah, and, a and that's, basically, <laughs> that's basically what we were doing. Like, hey, we, we got to wait till we get some momentum. Uh, and <laughs> when the news goes out, and, and, and this is serious because this is, I'm going to put myself into uh, that time period as a black person being a slave, right? Okay. All right. And and news is coming. Oh, you know the Union soldiers won that um, won their last battle, and you know, and Lincoln's trying to set us free. That makes me think. Okay, they're winning, so I'm more uh, likely to run to freedom. Now you see how we were treated from the right. from the uh, example they gave in uh, in the 1619 project itself. But uh, and and you've seen it in Glory. Glory has a good. 
depiction of uh, how Union soldiers, and I know it's uh, fictionalized, but it wasn't all roses, and you know, no, and, no, they, know. They, they 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 crossed the bridge and said, "Screw it," blew up the bridge and see you later, right? And oftentimes, the the un- black Union soldiers was used as cannon fodder. Yeah, uh, so, but. Yeah, it was all strategic. It wasn't like, oh, my heart is torn for these poor black people, and I have to do something about it. You know, well, that's, it was more. <laughs> I'm losing the war, and, and, the, and the first. <laughs> just, this is such a such a letdown as a white person. We, we we have not done any good here. We're just trying to win the war. <laughs> well, the, yeah, and if you read and if you listen to the first NPR clip, he says that the interest in the war from the north was kind of like they were losing steam. They were like, you know what? Yeah, this, we got to spice them up here. Thing. Yeah, this still <laughs> war thing. I don't really want to fight for this. It doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> I guess he was trying to gain, you know, get the momentum back. Um, well, we have Alan, another clip from Alan. All right. Uh, and he's going to give us. Uh, the last piece of information that we need to have on the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, it's important to notice what the proclamation doesn't do fully as much as what it does. The Emancipation Proclamation, strictly speaking, does not free all the slaves. It frees the slaves in Confederate-held territory, which looks a little strange. That made the London Times make the comment that in those places where Lincoln does have uncontested authority, places like the border states, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, and Delaware. Uh, He doesn't free anybody, but in the places where he doesn't have any authority, or at least not the muscle to back it up, uh, there he declares people free. And the London Times thought that was terribly funny. And no one else did, because it was very clearly understood that as Commander-in-Chief issuing a War Powers Proclamation, he could only issue that proclamation to cover those areas which were in rebellion, which were at war. Wow. This is great. I love here. I love learning this. This is really, really fantastic. Yeah, now, so and next time somebody tell you that the Emancipation, emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, you, had, you could take them down. Yeah. <laughs> you yes, you say, down. well, I'm sorry, surely you mean the war proclamation, the emancipation, <laughs> the war order emancipation proclamation. That's how you start. And I want to I give you a little, you know, a little example. So I learned, like I always point out, my interest in history and these things were really uh, driven by my black history class I took with Dr. Mosley. Uh, one of my professors, mm-hmm. and this is one of the things we learned in his class because it was it, it was um from Civil War to Civil Rights. It was that time period because you know those are the two mile markers, and everything in between there is kind of <laughs> kind of glossed over. Mm-hmm. But I came home and I was like, Dad, you never believe this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Abraham Lincoln didn't free all the slaves. <laughs> what did what did your dad say? What the hell are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? Like he, he didn't actually believe me. Wow. And you know, I, I, yeah, it's so ingrained. And, and did, oh, this is interesting. So did you did you finally bring him around? I'm not sure. <laughs> exactly. I mean, because I yeah. if you've learned that for 50, 60 years, it's hard to unlearn that. And your and your and your college kid comes you home and like, oh, now I'm going to teach you something new. It's it's very um I think it's very jarring but <clears throat> these are the facts 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I know now he he understands. I mean, we had these conversations, but at, in in that moment, nah, he didn't wow. believe me. Jeez. <clears throat> well, as you know, I never like to leave the show on a on a low note uh, because that's not what we do. We like to uh, not. Uh, we like to keep our people mentally healthy as well. So mentally you can, healthy, you can go right. in, go uh, into after the show, continue with your life, feeling good about what you've learned. Right. And I found this interesting YouTube channel called Ask Ask a Slave, <laughs> and I don't even know how I feel about this. To be honest with you, <laughs> Ask a Slave is this? Yes. A, is this like cosplay or what, what's going on with this? Just just play the clip, man. Right. I don't know. All right. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think if you look at it honestly, slavery isn't that bad. Oh, no, this did not come up in here talking that goddamn man. Uh, hello, you there? What was it you were saying? Oh, yeah, I was just saying, I think slavery is a good industrious life where you got room and board for your work. Oh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I built my own damn house, sir. Wait, what? I built my own damn house, sir. My husband and I built it out of wood we chopped down from the forest. All right. Well, technically, it was probably your master's forest then, which means he gave you the wood, which you have to admit was pretty nice. Oh, yeah. He's real nice. Let me ask you, sir. Have you ever built a house before? Uh, no. Figures. Probably had your slaves do it for you. (laughs) What is this? (laughs) What kind of sketch comedy am I listening to? I don't know, and I can't get my head around it because if it was conservative-driven, it'd have been off YouTube. But what, what's the but what's the visuals on this? What what are we seeing? It's on a the lady. Screen? She's dressed in uh your typical time period uh, attire, mm-hmm. and but she has people from the present asking her questions. And she answers them from that time period. Oh, interesting. And maybe I didn't set the clip up well, but I'm just, because I don't know how to take this. Come like, hold on. When I saw it, I was like, ask a slave. (laughs) So so automatically, I'm triggered. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm triggered. I'm like, what what kind of shenanigans is going on here? But, (laughs) But the way she answers the questions, as you heard, it's, it's funny and it comes off as, uh, condescending to the asker, As somewhat so, right. So I just, I just don't, but, but kind of factual in, in a way too. But it, I just found it funny. But I just, it's one of those things you don't know. I don't really know how to take it. Well, hit me with some uh, more. You got more of this channel? Yeah. Um. But well, uh, let's uh, two sides of every coin. Slavery wasn't just bad for black people. White people were slaves too. You know what? What are you talking about? White people ain't slaves. Yes, there were. There were thousands of Irish slaves. Yeah, so what's that got to do with anything? See, I told you there were. Now, wait a minute. You can't be white and Irish at the same time. Wait a minute. I'm white and I'm Irish. Oh, honey, I see the confusion. Yes, you're pale as bonefish, sure. But any God-fearing white man will tell you, you're just a (laughs) turned inside out. (laughs) What? (laughs) <laughs> Glad I could clear that up for you. Next question. <laughs> well, I'm glad there's humor about these things today. That's the good news. That's the good news. Yeah. So. Wow. That's that's my wrap on the 1619 project and everything that ensued uh, after the release of it. Well, I think we need a a, a, a new project 
Uh, although this this whole episode, I think, kind of suffices in a way when we come up with a good title to uh, to show that that's what we're really talking about here. At Mo, thank you so much for this. This was a very good, uh, necessary deconstruction of uh, of the 1619 project. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I've learned uh, a lot, and and actually, then beyond that, then some more. Um, and uh, it's good to have this knowledge in your back pocket as we go into the. Uh, 2020 election. In particular, I would say to uh, pay good attention to Republicans who are touting uh, Lincoln as uh, as their uh, as their big hero, um, and some having the right information is always helpful. It's ne- it can never be too much, in my opinion. And I think this goes to speak about what we spoke of on previous shows about people are coming becoming more edu- uh, educated. Yep. And the propaganda can't work as well anymore. Just remember, you heard it here on a podcast. And as I always say, pay attention to everything and the truth will reveal itself. Mo, thank you so much for this. It was quite the pleasure and I'm pretty sure everybody else had a good time. All right, Adam, take care. Take care, buddy. One day, child, I won't have to listen to your line. On that day, I'll be able to make up my own mind. You know, I think I done finally realized. Yes, I have. And now I think I can put you out of my life. I'm gonna be free. Yes, I am. Oh, oh. I'm gonna be free, child.